Genesis chapter 15, verse 17 is just one verse, but again, we're going to go through a lot of selected scripture, but the passage that I wanted to highlight this morning is from Genesis chapter 15, verse 17. And so here now the word of the Lord. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. And again, until we can meet in person for the next few weeks, I wanted to go over the elements of the Christian gospel message with you all. And in the beginning, I think I said the basics of the gospel and I just wanted to, I thought about it. Is it really that basic as if if you went to church, you don't need any more, like, ah, oh, this is so elementary. But basics meaning these are foundational principles that undergird all the other things that we're doing because this is so um, elaborate and overt in the scriptures. And so we'll be going over various portions of scripture, but these are the elements of the gospel that we want to be reminded of, being reinforced by, but strengthened by. And I thought, what better way to spend our time with our families just going over what really girds our faith, what really is foundational to what we say is the gospel. So what is the gospel? What is the gospel? The one true holy God created us and put us in a perfect world. He made us in his image so that we could know and love him. Even so, we rebelled and cut ourselves off from him. We incurred sin, and for that, we deserve his just and righteous wrath. But in his great love, God sent his son Jesus to come and rescue his people by giving us the forgiveness of sins, so that those that repent and turn to him, those that trust him, that call on his name, are given new life and eternal life with God. That's the gospel. We've talked about the bad news in, in detail somewhat, and some might wonder now how that ties in with the good news. Some might even wonder, why can't we just go with the flow? The ebb and flow of time. Why can't we just try to make ourselves be superhuman by ourselves? Why do we need God? Why can't I just be the ubermensch, right? As uh, Nietzsche would say. Why can't we just use our own knowledge and our own capacities to evolve to a greater being? And because of that, philosophers over the ages have come up with theories to take God out and replace that space with what they would call reason or rationalism. After all, isn't truth truth? And so we adopt ideologies of ebb and flow. The idea that as long as the pendulum swings back and forth, we'll be okay. But in recent days, and especially these days, people are wondering why the pendulum is, seems to be swinging so hard, so fast from one extreme to another. Because the idea of ebb and flow isn't just simply like the tides. 
because you don't take into account the tides um, change. The shore erodes. Time doesn't simply ebb and flow because even if it's back one step, it's two steps forward. Time moves forward. And the same goes for you as well. Sure, you could have aced fifth grade if you took it again, but the time for fifth grade has passed. No matter how much you like Billy Madison, time moves forward. You might look at a fifth grader and think then how lucky they are. You're so lucky to be in fifth grade and not think that someone older than you thinks that way when they look at you because time moves forward. And a lot of times we're just stuck looking back. I don't know if it's because when we face forward, we're scared, we see the bleakness of the future, or if it's because we'll maybe think or like realize it'll never be good as the old days, right? But those of us that grew up in the church know that looking back and just reminiscing about the good old days is not a good thing. In fact, it says so in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 10. And this is what Ecclesiastes 7.10 says. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. So it's not wise to look back and be like, oh, I wish I could go back. Because wisdom doesn't dictate that that is a good thing. So... When does it actually feel good when you look forward? How can someone then turn around from the past and look forward? You know, these days we were continually thinking, uh, we want to go back to normal. How long is it going to be until we go back to normal? But that's all looking back. And wisdom would say, say not, why were the good old days so good? When does it look good to look forward then? And so Ecclesiastes 7.10 doesn't just stop there. If you look at the very next verse, I'll just tell you what it is. It gives us some insight. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. So when you look forward, there is something to look forward to, an inheritance. That's what wisdom would dictate. Let me share with you what Psalm 16, verse 5 through 11 says. It says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forever more. 
So here, even the psalmist knows that when we, God's people, are to look or travel is to look forward. And what do we look forward to is an inheritance that has been promised to us. And it says so. This is not just in the Old Testament. Here it is right in the New Testament in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11. It says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. It says, In him who is him, it's Jesus Christ. Because you see, all this time, with every step that you take, remember, time moves forward. It's going ahead. With every step that we take, you get closer and closer to your destination. You don't just stand still. You're not a rock. You're moving forward. Time is moving forward. The universe is expanding at an alarming rate. It's moving forward. It doesn't just ebb and flow, simply go back and forth. The bad news, though, is that as sinners, that means we are becoming greater and greater sinners. I was explaining to a brother the other day that I had read about a personal account that never left me, and I was a young man, and I was reading about this, and it was about lust. As a young man, this man thought that, you know what, lust is bad, but you know, once I get married, it'll be okay. Once I get married, I won't be captivated by it, so, you know, why fight against it? Aren't you a man, you know? Aren't you a young, healthy man? So, don't fight against it. But it wasn't before long after he got married that he knew that was a lie. That was a lie. Just because you get married, lust doesn't go away. In fact, he realized that it grows. It grows. But he's still young, he thought. I'm married, but I'm still young in my 30s and 40s. I'm young, I'm sure. It'll get better as I mature. But the account was was from someone that was retired way past his 70s. And the account of the man was saying that that sin never diminished, even at that age, but that it rages on inside of him all the more All the more because his body can't respond the way he wants to. You know, we think hell is some abstract idea and it's too cumbersome to follow intellectually. But it's not. Tell me what's easier. Tell me what's easier in life. Is it just going with the flow? Giving into temptations whenever they come? And the evil desires that come along your way? What's easier, that or when you try to fight against it, when you try to fight back against the evil, tell me what's easier. And if you're honest with yourself, you'll see that many times it was too hard and you've given up fighting against it. You just want to go where the river takes you, you know? But here, in the Word of God, we are reminded. You may just say, you know, it's too hard 
It's too convoluted, it's too cumbersome, it's too difficult, whatever it is. Let's just go where the river takes us. But in the Bible, it shows us, well, then stop looking back. Stop looking back and look forward to where the river is taking you. Look ahead. What's there? If you're taking step by step by step by step, where will it eventually lead you? If you're honest with yourself, you'll see what is ahead if you let the river just take you. But then we see an interjection, uh, interjection, an intervention, and we see in the Bible as God would part the sea outside of Egypt, Jesus would also come onto the scene and he would start calling his disciples. And as he would call his disciples, he would say to them, follow me, follow me. And people would notice this man is different from the rest. He's not just in some political party of the world that just swings back and forth, but he is on dry ground and it's solid. And to top that off, he's going the opposite direction from wherever the flow would have taken you. So where is this new destination? An inheritance. But what kind of inheritance? Well, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, it tells us it's to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Where are you going now? And what kind of inheritance do you have in Christ? 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4 tells us, No matter how good anything is in this world, no matter how good you think it is, it is, number one, perishable. It is, number two, it can be defiled. And number three, it will fade. But there is something that we are to look forward to that are not these things. It's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Now, as a skeptical person, I would think to ask, well, how do we know that's true? How do we know this is true for us? Now, this is where we see a word that's used in the Bible, and it's translated as down payment. Down payment. That's when you want to ensure a purchase of something, a house or a car, whatever, putting a down payment is part of the contract or deal that you undertake that ensures that purchase. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, and also in Second uh, uh, Corinthians, excuse me, chapter 1, verse 21 and 22, but also 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, it talks about this down payment, how he establishes us, gives us this guarantee, but it also says that in Ephesians chapter 1, 13, verse 14, which I'll share with you now, it says, In him, meaning in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You see, because even in Romans 8, 6, it tells us the, the mind of the flesh is death. It's going to die, but the mind of the Spirit is life and peace. 
See, God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit is our guarantor and guarantee. He is our guarantor and guarantee, and he shows us that in the person of the Holy Spirit. A guarantor and guarantee of what? A contract? Is it a contract that we're talking about? Is it a deal? But in the Bible, it shows us that God is showing us that it's much more than a contract or a deal. I'm going to go to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15 with you. And in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, it says, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant so this is not just simply a contract it's not simply a deal that you make like shake on it it's a covenant it's a promise sealed in blood but not just anyone's blood. It's sealed by the blood of Christ. To understand what that means, we go, you can go through all of Scripture. You'll see how it, it, you, when you expound it, when you extrapolate it, when you dive deep, when you excavate, right? You'll see so many amazing things. But today, we're just going to go to one verse in Genesis 15, 17. And this what we read earlier is one of the more enigmatic passages in Scripture. And I love this passage. But it says here, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. And what does that mean? So let's hear it in some context. Abraham, at the time his name was Abram. Abram has a vision from God. And I hope you'll catch all the words that is going to be said here because they are quite significant. God tells Abram, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Abram, knowing that God was talking about his heir then, his descendants, tells him that he has no son. I don't have a son, God. But Eliezer of Damascus, he's the guy that's next in line. He's the next of kin. And God responds to Abraham, assuring Abram that it will not be Eliezer, but it will be a son from Abraham, his own offspring. And then he takes Abraham and he shows him the stars of the sky and, he, and tells Abraham that his offspring will be as numerous as that. And so Abram asks the question, that I had asked before. How can I know this to be true? How can I know this to be true? And so the Lord tells Abram some instructions. He says, bring a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. When the Lord tells Abram to do this, he knew that the sign God would show him is about a covenant. 
The sign that God would show him that he could know that God would carry out his promise would be this sign of the covenant. Abram knew this, so he sets up all the animals. Which, by the way, all these animals, the heifer, the goat, the ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon or a dove, these are all animals suitable for sacrifice, and we see that in the Old Testament. And so what Abram does is he cuts them in half, except the birds, they were tiny. Like, I looked up how small a turtle dove is, tiny. But Abraham sets up the animals that are suitable for sacrifice and cuts them in half. And now, when you cut a large animal in half, when you split them in half, it's not some Disney picture. It's not, it's not a nice, like, oh, pretty picture that has, like, sprinkles all over it. It's extremely bloody. And it's gruesome. You take an animal, cut it in half, what you did was then you would set the animals, the, the pieces, the halves, like on opposite sides of each other. That means, in the Bible it says, set the sides over against each other. That means you put them on opposite sides. So then you can now see this picture. When you take a full-grown animal, you split it in half, you set it up against each other on opposite ends. Now you will see a picture of all these animals and sacrifices laid along the side, and in the middle is what? In the middle is a path of blood. Blood is flowing down the middle. And Abram, notably tired from probably chasing the scavengers away and cutting the animals in half, he falls asleep. It's here, the Bible tells us, it's then a dreadful and great darkness falls upon him. During this time, God tells Abram that his descendants will be subject to harsh oppression and slavery for 400 years in Egypt. And actually, that's what happened. This is important also because after Egypt, we saw in Exodus another covenant that is ratified with the people and God. But here, we'll stay here. That's when, after all this happens, after he sets the sides, the blood is flowing down the middle. He's chasing the other birds away. He's tired. He falls asleep. A dreadful and great darkness falls on him. That's when we come upon this verse. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Abram fell asleep waiting for God. Why? Because in those times when a covenant was ratified, both parties would walk through the carcasses. It meant, now when both parties are walking through the carcasses in this path of blood, what it meant was, this is what would happen to us if any one of the parties would break this covenant. It was literally saying, may it be done to us as it was done to these carcasses if we break this covenant. It's the punishment guaranteed to those that would break what first ratified this covenant. It's a self-maledictory curse that you put on yourself as you walk through. That's how they ratified covenants back in the day. But here is why this verse is so special. Abram doesn't walk through the path of blood. He's asleep. He has this vision, but he doesn't walk through the path of blood. Only one party walks through 
this path of blood. Only God walks through. And this is what that means. This shows us that God is now swearing by himself, meaning he is the highest authority there is. There is none higher than Jehovah, and that's how this oath will be ratified. That's how God shows Abraham how he will keep his promise to him. How do I know I will have this inheritance? And God goes, okay, there's going to be a covenant that I'm going to set. It's going to be ratified just as you know it. There's going to be this path. May it be done to us, the self-maledictory curse. And only God walks through. And that's just one of the covenant promises we see in the Old Testament, albeit this is an incredible one. This is an incredible, incredible promise. There's the Mosaic covenant that gets ratified on the mountain over when we went over Exodus. But here are what those covenantal promises all mean. In Hebrews chapter 8, I'll read from you verse 5 and 6. What do those covenants mean? They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect a tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. These things that we went over right now, as incredible as they were, they were, they were simply shadows and copies. They're copies of what? Of the covenant Christ would make with his people. So back to the gospel. Yes, there is bad news, and it's really bad. But the good news is far more supreme. The one true holy God created us and put us in a perfect world. He made us in his image so that we could know and love him. Even so, we rebelled and cut ourselves off from him. We incurred sin and for that we deserve his just and righteous wrath. But in his great love, God sent his son Jesus to come and rescue his people by giving us forgiveness for our sins. So that those that repent and turn to him, those that trust him, that call on his, call on his name, are given new life and eternal life with God. The promise that God makes, that he swears by himself to his people, is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Christ. Jesus Christ alone atoned for our sins that we could be right with God. And just like the smoking fire pot and flaming torch would go through the carcasses alone, it is Jesus Christ alone, it is He alone that justifies the sinner. And that is the good news because what kind of works could we have honestly contributed to that covenant? Jonathan Edwards writes this, You contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. And he's not being facetious here because this is true. Maybe a little facetious, but, but it's true. 
Before we were saved, none of our works glorified God. None of your thoughts exalted Him. They only exalted, or at least attempted to exalt, the self. There is nothing we can do in our sinful state to earn favor with God. And this is why when Jesus comes on the scene and says, follow me, it is blissful joy to the hearer who has been waiting for salvation. There was no way, but when Jesus comes on the scene, he makes a way. He split the sea so that the disciple can walk on dry ground. But the key here is that it's to follow him. That's the key. He split the sea so that we could follow him. The smoking fire pot, the flaming torch, what did that symbolize? The smoking fire pot, it symbolized a pillar of cloud. You would see at night, if there was a smoking fire pot, the smoke would rise up. It would look like a pillar of cloud, a flaming torch, a pillar of fire. And even 400 years before Egypt, God was showing him, God was showing Abram and his people that he himself would lead them because 400 years after what do we see in Exodus chapter 13 verse 21 and 22 it says this and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might marvel they they might travel excuse me but they might travel by day and by night the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Now, this is incredible. But eventually, didn't it stop? But eventually it stopped, didn't it? Why did it stop? Because they were a shadow. As incredible as these promises and these visions and these manifestations were, they were a shadow of what was to come. And that's why for the last year and a half, we were in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, the book starts off by showing us that God is Emmanuel. In, in verse 23, the very first chapter of Matthew says, God, and he will be named his son Emmanuel, he is with his people, God with us. That's how the book starts. How does the, how does the book end? How does chapter 28 end? It ends by Jesus saying, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the sure and better promise. Jesus will never depart from his people. God's salvation is complete and fulfilled in Jesus Christ because in his great love for us, God sends his Son not just a sign or a symbol, as incredible as that may be, but himself incarnate in the flesh to save his people and lead them to the promised land. He showed it to us by living the perfect life and dying the complete death, absolutely fulfilling the covenant promise by taking on the punishment of sins for many. But remember, the dreadful and great darkness that fell upon Abraham in a vision. What did that symbolize? This actually happens to Jesus on the cross. He takes on that wrath that sinners deserve. 
so that he could lead us. So now it's on us to trust in him and follow his lead. That's what we mean by repentance. Repentance means we now let go of the things of the world and we trust and follow Jesus Christ. To turn away from the flow of the world because now there is a path made for us by Christ is to turn to Christ and follow him because his ways are perfect. His ways are sure. The ways of the world are a snare. It continues to entangle. It continues to trip us up. And this is why the psalmist would say in Psalm 18, verse 30 and 31, This God, His way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in Him. This would throw us back all the way to what I read. Remember what God promised Abraham. For who is God but Jehovah? Who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This is why we believe in solus Christus, which means but only by Christ we are saved. It is only in Christ we place our trust. And Christ will lead his church, and he will lead you into the inheritance that is promised. This is why salvation is only by Christ alone. And I hope that we remember these things, especially during this time in our homes, if you're staying at home, much more than you know that you normally would have, of course. But as you stay home, what should we keep our minds on? And Ho Young did that, read that wonderful prayer. You know, it's not so that we could engulf ourselves and engross ourselves in more media isn't it to reflect and think and enjoy this good news? We could go expand it like from east to west. It's so wide, but we could also dive deep and go really deep, and it's so incredible. That's how wonderful the gospel is. Let me just remind you one more time what the gospel is as we end today's sermon and why it's such good news for us. The one true holy God created us and put us in a perfect world. He made us in his image so that we could know and love him. Even so, we rebelled and cut ourselves off from him. We incurred sin, and for that, we deserve his just and righteous wrath. But in his great love for us, God sent his son Jesus to come and rescue his people by giving us forgiveness for our sins. So those that repent and turn to him, those that trust him and call on his name are given new life and eternal life with God. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the good news that you give us through your son, Jesus Christ. When we look to the world, there is no good news. We long for good news, and so many people do. But Lord, we know that we have been given the ultimate good news by your Son. And we ask that we, as your people, will continue to place our faith and trust our hearts, our lives, to you and you alone. May not be given to the things of this world, 
May we not be falling into temptation over and over again, but Lord God, empower your people now with the down payment that you have promised us. Give us your Holy Spirit so that we can live the life that you call us to live and follow you all our days. And may you be glorified here in our church, in your church. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forever. Amen.